lot of what works elsewhere in life works poorly in finance. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am pleased you can join us this week. Before we get into the episode, if you can spare a few minutes and head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that'd be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So who's our guest today? It's Dr. Daniel Crosby. Who is Dr. Crosby? He's a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who helps organizations and individuals understand the intersection of our mind and markets. He's the author of three fantastic books, one called Personal Benchmark, which was a New York Times bestseller. His second book that looks at the laws of wealth was a fantastic book. And his latest book, The Behavioral Investor, is really fascinating as it focuses on neurology, psychology, physiology, and sound financial decision-making. Super interesting. So in this conversation, we talk about what is this field of behavioral finance and why should we pay attention to it? And really, this is a fascinating field. It focuses on economics, finance, sociology, and psychology. We also talk about how our human brain really, for the most part, hasn't received any major upgrades or updates since the last 200,000 years as we've evolved, despite technology is constantly being updated and more information and more decisions are being thrown at us. We're faced with 30,000 plus decisions a day. No wonder we make these errors or these cognition errors around our personal finances. So Dr. Crosby talks about how we can, as he calls it, close this massive knowing and doing gap, utilizing the learnings from behavioral finance. It's not that we can reduce the errors per se, but it's how can we utilize the learnings to override our cognitive biases so that we can experience financial health. I also encourage everyone to check out Dr. Crosby's podcast called Standard Deviations as he talks about fascinating concepts and has wonderful guests. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Welcome to the show, Dr. Crosby. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, you know, your bio has a lot of information about behavior finances, psychology, markets, and your title, as you talk about on your podcast, Standard Deviation, you talk, your, your title at work is Chief Behavioral Officer. So for people who might not be so familiar with Chief Behavioral Officer, intersection of mind and markets, can you perhaps elaborate on a quote I heard you saying that explained your industry? And this was, if the internet is wrong, I'm sorry, but it said, your industry is a mutt of a discipline that sits at the intersections of economics, finance, sociology, and psychology. Yeah, that's well said. No, that's well, that's well said if I, if I did say it myself. So yeah, it is, it is a bit of a mutt. There's elements of, of social psychology, certainly, how, how we make decisions in crowds. There's elements of psychology, sort of the, the attendant biases and the, the individual thought processes around money. 
And then there's, of course, the economic and, and finance piece. So you find most people with, with jobs like mine and they're, you know, admittedly, there's not a ton of us, but, you know, find most people with jobs like mine either have deep expertise in, in psychology or finance and then have to sort of learn the other world. So my PhD is in clinical psychology. Many of sort of the Nobel Prize winning behavioral economists have a similar background but I think you're starting to see a lot of financiers who are learning about the human nature side of things. It's certainly a multidisciplinary study. So you need a little bit of all of these worlds to be able to think about how people uh, make decisions with money. Yeah, you bring up such a good point that for a while, these industries or these studies were separate, so to speak, like psychology sat over here, finance, economics sat over here. Is it true that I've heard like through studies, like your master's program, I don't know if it's in the PhD, but uh, they almost like talk about money, you know, in a sense, bad, <laughs> like, oh, you can't focus on money. And just curious, perhaps if that's true, has that created this lack of desire to integrate them traditionally? Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting question. If you look at old school econometrics, like, you know, old school, traditional econ, the way that it was taught was saying that people were utility maximizers. Basically, mm. people always made optimal decisions that sort of maximized their level of wealth. Now, that is often true. It is certainly not anything like always true. And what it did is that it allowed economists to make simplifying assumptions and it allowed them to make sort of clean, elegant models of, of the way that, that economies would work. But of course, the big fly in the ointment is, is human behavior. You know, we know that people do all kinds of silly things with their money. They don't always optimize their financial outcomes. Sometimes it's not even clear at all what financial optimal is or should be. And so all of these sort of limits to our understanding, the limits of our mind, the limits of our rationality are sort of where behavior and finance started to, to cross-pollinate. And so, you know, we're at a point now where I think it's widely accepted that, you know, the, we, we have this independent field called behavioral finance or behavioral economics, but I think it's widely understood that all finance and all uh, economics is behavioral. And in fact, you know, people are the fundamental units of economies. People are the fundamental units of markets, you know, these things don't exist in nature, right? A hedge fund, a derivative, a, a mutual fund, like you don't dig these up or pick them from a tree. Like these, these are things that people dreamt up and these are things that people screw up through their, you know, through their shortcomings and their misunderstandings. Yeah, okay. So a, a lot that you said there, so thank you. I, I kind of want to go back to that, like what is optimal? And it's interesting, like when I was going through my CFP program, we would go through like the optimal case study. This is what people should do. And then I got out in the field and work and I was like, what the heck is going on? Like, A, I haven't done anything optimal, really. B, nobody's doing things optimal. And on a personal side, that's when I started coming across this behavioral finance and seeing that there's what the market should do or the financial equation should do. But then we have these human behaviors. So from your perspective, how would you console someone who's like, I just can't make these decisions. What's wrong with me? I, I see everybody else making these decisions. Is it normal to make poor financial decisions? Yeah, it's, it's definitely normal. I found a recent study that, that said that 98% of people in the study 
made sort of significant financial errors, you know, had, had fallen prey to sort of significant financial biases. And I mean, guess what? I bet the other 2% did too. You know, <laughs> the, the study just didn't capture it. But yeah, I mean, certainly take heart for what it's worth. You're, you're in good company with effectively everyone else. And then I think the thing that we learn is that optimal is, is an individual consideration. Right. I think a lot of times finance or economics talks talks about what I'll call spreadsheet optimal. Mm. So sort of all else being held equal in a perfect world. But, you know, we don't live in a world where all else is equal. We don't live in a perfect world. And so, you know, to use an example from my own life, a couple of years ago, I paid off my house uh, and there's no spreadsheet that would tell me that that was a good decision right? Because mortgage rates in the U.S. are so low right now, you can get a mortgage for 2%. So they would say, no, keep, you know, keep the debt on your house and take that money that you use to pay it off and invest it and make 7% in the stock market instead of, you know, saving 2% on your debt service. Well, the truth is, though, paying off my house was such a psychological boon for me and had such a positive impact Mm. and made me feel so safe that I was able to be much more rational and take appropriate risk with the rest of my money because I felt basically like no matter what else happens, I'm not going to live on the street now. You know, I have a place to keep my, you know, my wife and children warm and dry, no matter sort of what else happens. So that's sort of an easy everyday example of a financial decision that no traditionally trained financier would consider optimal Mm. of a risk return trade-off. And yet it's psychologically optimal for me because I needed that peace of mind to be able to invest the rest of my money and take appropriate risk with it. Yeah, thanks so much. I I really appreciate that answer. Kind of before the show, I was saying that how much I appreciate your podcast because you look at like the psychological aspects of wealth. And I know this is this is an observation, not a criticism, but I've heard a lot of podcasts that have very strong opinions on what you just said about don't pay off your house or use this money. But if, to your point, from a spreadsheet perspective, and I like how you talk about optimal as individual. Now, I kind of want to dig into the, the psychologist of you. With so much technology coming at us, so much information, do you find it's difficult for people to actually understand what is optimal for them and actually have some time, space for some reflection to actually see that, hey, you know what, paying off my mortgage is going to create this mental capacity so that I have some, I guess, slack that I'm going to feel good. So I guess my question is, do you see people are being challenged to actually sit down and try to understand what they actually want and not what everybody else is trying to impart on them? Well, there's two things that are that are at play here, right? So first is what we'll call mimetic desire, and I'll kind of break that down. And then the second thing is our ability to forecast accurately what makes us happy, mm. okay? So mimetic desire, the root word of mimetic is meme, right? So it's this sort of social proof. We look around at what other people are doing and we go, oh, I think that's going to make me happy. Like I want the big house like the Kardashians or, you know, I want the flashy car like this athlete or I want the big corner office job or whatever the case may be. So I think many, many of us, have not taken the time to sit down and sort of be still and say, what really makes me happy? You know, who am I? What makes me happy and what doesn't? 
So that's one thing. We've got sort of, you know, everything from the neighbors to the media kind of telling us who we should be and what we should want. And I think that sometimes we're uncritically absorbing those messages to, to our detriment. And then the other thing is we're just not that good at predicting what makes us happy. We're good at predicting stuff that will give us physical pleasure, right? Like no one's ever had a meeting about whether or not to make liver and onion flavored ice cream, because we can look at that on its face and go, you know what, that's not going to be great, right? You know, that's, that's not going to be great because it's a physical sensation. We know this is going to feel good. This is going to hurt. But when it comes to our psychological well-being, we're much less able to forecast what makes us happy. So there's a famous study done on people who are in severe accidents and become disabled and people who win the lottery. And it found that one year on, their levels of happiness were not that different than where they started. You know, if I ask you, you know, what would happen tomorrow if you won the lottery, you would say, you know, wow, like I would be on cloud nine, I would be set, I would be so happy. And I'd say, well, what happened if you were in a tragic car accident and you lost the use of your legs? And you would say, wow, that would be so tough. That would be so hard. The truth is hard stuff doesn't make us as sad as we think. And good stuff doesn't make us as happy as we think. And a lot of happiness is internal and it's sort of self-derived and candidly, a lot of happiness is genetic. <laughs> so mm. it's sort of at sort of out of our control in, in, in some respects too. So those two things, I think, make it difficult for us to really kind of pin down what we want and what's going to make us happy because there's a lot of competing messages. Am I recalling, uh, maybe it's the same study, but did those individuals who were in the car accident after X amount of months, did they regain their kind of baseline happiness level prior to the accident? So they do. So what, what happens is there is an initial spike. I mean, you know, people who win the lottery are, they really are happy for a few months and people who are injured in an accident really are sad for a few months. But then what we find is about 50% of happiness is genetic, right? So people have sort of a happiness set point in the same way that people have a, a healthy weight set point. Mm -hmm. Everyone can influence their weight through diet and exercise, but it's easier for some people than others. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of happiness, right? Like everyone can influence their happiness for the better or the worse through, through the decisions that they make. But some people are certainly more naturally happy than others. And so we find both groups sort of reverting to a set point after about a year or so. Yeah, it's so interesting. I guess I kind of want to come back to this behavioral finance and the, the root of it is what people like yourself talk about is cognitive biases, these mental shortcuts that help us make quick decisions amongst the thousands of decisions we have to. From an evolutionary standpoint, they're really important. That's why you and I are still here. And it seems that over the last 200 and so thousands of years that we've been around, we've evolved a lot, except my app on my phone in Canada, at least my app store, I don't know about the US, I can't download the latest 2.0 of the human brain. And it <laughs> seems like the brain hasn't been, or we can't install and download the new version of our brain. So these cognitive biases that at one point in time helped us survive, evolve. But now when we look at, the, look at them, especially through a lens of personal finance, investing, like you talk a lot about in your books, are we, I, I'm meaning to sound negative, but are we financially doomed? 
Are we, can we not make financial decisions? How are these cognitive biases impacting us? Maybe start just a little bit of definition around them and then can we do anything about them? Yeah, so we are ill-built to make, to make good financial decisions. Like, let's put it that way, right? So I, I really like the way that you've sort of teed up this, this discussion around biases because I think a lot of times we use bias in the sense of like a racial prejudice or, or something like that. I think people have sort of the wrong idea about what bias is more broadly. You know, bias broadly is a heuristic or a mental shortcut that is a result of a couple of things. The first thing is that we make 35,000 decisions every day, right? You make hundreds of decisions every day about what to eat. And I mean, a lot of those decisions are, you know, should I eat now? Should I eat now? Should I get a drink now? And it's, it, you know, it's often no, right? But we make hundreds of decisions a day about food. We make thousands and thousands of decisions about other stuff. And so we're not going to sit down with a T-chart and do a very deep dive on the pros and cons of every one of those sort of teeny tiny decisions. We're going to rely on things like emotion. We're going to rely on what's worked in the past and we're going to rely on shortcuts. And, you know, for the most part, that serves us really, really well, right? We see the sort of angry looking guy on our side of the street and we go, you know what, I'm going to cross to the other side of the street. And usually that's the right thing to do, right? Sometimes we misjudge a person, but usually that's the right thing to do. And these, these biases or these shortcuts keep us efficient and they keep us working. Well, what's tricky, though, is that a lot of what works elsewhere in life works poorly in finance. So the rules of, of everyday life apply very poorly to the world of finance. So take something like action bias, right, which is our tendency to want to, to move in the face of danger, fight or flight sort of thing. Well, if you're being chased by a bear, like action bias is incredibly adaptive, right? You should run. And when I was in Western Canada for a summer, I saw a bunch of bears <laughs> and I was glad to have my action bias, you know, sort of, sort of engaged so I could have my wits about me. Now, think about the stock market. In the stock market, what you should do when there is a bear, if you will, <laughs> when in the stock market, the thing that you should do if there's a, a volatile market is typically nothing. But you're not wired to do nothing in the market any more than you're wired to do nothing when you see a wild animal. And so, you know, I could go on and on, but a, a lot of these things that apply and serve us well elsewhere in life are 180 degrees different in financial markets. So is there any hope for us? I think that the greatest hope we have is working with a third party, candidly, working with someone sort of outside of ourselves and in automating these behaviors. Because there's evidence that, you know, there's evidence that learning about behavior in and of itself is inadequate. 13% of people in the US smoke, right? But among doctors, it's 17%. And among nurses, it's 24%. So you would think that these people who spend their whole lives, you know, going to school, learning the detrimental effects of, of uh, tobacco and things like that, telling people all day to stop smoking, they leave the office and light up, right? And this is, this is like, we all do this, right? We all do things that we know we shouldn't do. You know, we all eat a donut when we know we should eat a salad. 
you know, 40, <laughs> the, the lifetime prevalence of, a, of, of an affair is something like 33 to 35%. Not a single one of those people, you know, a third of all people have an affair. None of them are like, yeah, this is good. You know, I, sh- I should do this. Right. So there's this there's this knowing doing gap between what we know to do and what we actually do. And the best way around it is to automate our financial behavior or to put it in the hands of sort of an objective third party uh, like an advisor. Oh, yeah. Lots of good information there. And this knowing and doing gap. I've heard you talk about that and I had a, a thing to talk about. So I'm glad you bring it up. And it's just amazing when you reflect on your own self and not uh, like open up to be critical in yourself. I'm not critical, but not be defensive yourself and realize how often we have those knowing and doing gap. I know I do. When you talk about the donut, it's these companies fault for making these fancy donuts that taste so good. They're so good. <laughs> yeah. So if, if we have this innate biological tool, let's call it heuristic or mental shortcut that once helped us survive. And at times it does now, but it, works against us, it creates at times this knowing and doing gap, whether that's food, exercise, but specifically let's talk about money. Your suggestion is around the money side is to automate and to do a third party. And I, I agree and I, I love those two simple things because it's so simple and that's what we need in this world of finance. Mm-hmm. But I know people are like, okay, Dr. Crosby, Dr. Crosby, you're telling me automate? They've been telling me automate for 20 years. What would you say to that person in light of knowing and doing? Because they can you emphasize the importance of automating and the fact that I agree it's so, so simple, but it it's so important. But yet I just don't I think people are eating the donut instead of doing it. Yeah. So there is a class of problems. This is going to take a little digression. There's a class of problems that I call River Jordan problems. Okay. Okay. So after it's after the biblical story of this guy named Naaman. So Naaman is a powerful warrior. He's a rich guy. He's a pillar of his community, but he's a leper, right? He's this terrible skin disease. And so he goes to the local holy man and he's like, hey, cure me. And the holy man goes, sure enough, will do. Go bathe seven times in the River Jordan. And Naaman, this powerful warrior, this powerful rich guy goes effectively like, what the hell kind of advice is that, right? <laughs> like what, like the River Jordan, the River Jordan's dirty, the River Jordan's ugly. Like what's that going to do? And his servant in the story comes to him and says, look, man, if they had asked you to do something tough, you would have done it. So why don't you just mm. give this simple thing a try? And so he does it and he's cured. A lot of times when we know that a problem is complicated, like money's complicated, it, it truly is. And someone gives us a simple solution, we reject it on its face because it seems too good to be true or it seems too easy. Mm. So the psychology behind automation is this. What you're doing is you're taking a behavioral bias and making it work for your benefit. People are lazy. People are status quo prone. Like think about something you've signed up for, Netflix or HBO or something, and you just let it run for years and you forget about it because it's just like silently getting taken out of your account in the background, your gym membership, whatever, right? And you go, ah, like I'll take care of it later and you don't. And these people are billing you out of your mind. That same tendency to be lazy and status quo prone 
if you automate taking a little money out of your check every two weeks or month or whatever, and investing that in a sensible way, you can use your laziness to your advantage, right? So this human tendency to be lazy and status quo prone can work to our advantage. So to people who are critical of simple advice, I would say, you know, first of all, this is a River Jordan problem and don't overlook, you know, don't overlook the simplicity of the solution just because it's simple. And the the second thing I would say is, have you done it, right? (laughs) Like we all, we, we all know diet, exercise, saving, investing, we all know the things to do. But until we're doing them, I think we lose our right to be critical. So don't overlook it just because it's simple, uh, because it is actually quite powerful by sort of using your worst impulses against you, if you will. Mm. Yeah, I really like how you you break that down from like the cognitive bias side of overriding, overriding it. And that's, that's all you're doing. And if you could do that, it reminds me of what I've heard you talk a lot about on your podcast. And it resonates with me because... I think this is you saying this, you don't have a budget. Is that correct? I don't. Yeah. And nor do I. And as a, as a financial planner, people think what, but I take advantage of automating. And I've heard you talk about that too, is you automate the important things and then not to have that almost a scarcity mindset of line items. It just frees up mental bandwidth. At least I experienced that to go buy in your case, Guitars and Jordans, I think you like. In my guitars case. and Jordans, guitars and Jordans, and baseball cards. Those oh. are the, those are the three. Those are the three things. If you have a budget, and again, let me just say, this is in some respects comes from a place of privilege. Like I'm well paid, I don't have to worry about the necessities of life. But for people who are sort of mid, middle class or north of there, I think this concept works, where you can say, look. I'm going to set an aggressive savings goal so that whatever percent, 20, 30, 50% of my money, I never even see it. Like it, it's, it's as if it doesn't exist. It goes straight from my check into my investment account and it gets put in a sensible low fee investment. And so then what's left, right, which is half of what it was before, I can play with that money and I can do with it as I, as I see fit. And because sort of the, the negative part, if you will, the, the scarce part of it, the savings part, because we do perceive savings as a loss, mm-hmm. right? Because in a very real sense, it is a loss. Like, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the $10,000 I put in my investment account is $10,000. I don't have this, you know, a Mickey Mantle rookie card or some new Jordans. And so it is a loss, but it's easier to swallow if we can automate that process and just deal with the abundance of what's left. You, you mentioned the savings is a loss. And that's something that I've heard you talk a lot about is this idea of a loss aversion. Maybe can you touch on the power of loss aversion? And maybe we can go back to the ancestors and how that actually helped us become to the top of the food chain. But now the impacts it has on our money or our financial decisions, I'll say. Yeah, so what, what's interesting about homo sapiens is that we didn't always used to be the only humans on the block, right? There were 11 or 12 other types of humans. We've got Denisovans. We've got a group called the Hobbits in Indonesia. There were all these other people, if you will. And we, depending on who you ask, we either outlasted them or we killed them, (laughs) right? Sort of on the way to becoming the only humans on the block. And the way that we did this has a lot to do with risk management, 
You know, there's differing theories on this, on how we kind of rose to the top of the ranks. But the prevailing theory now is that we did this by being good risk managers. You know, when the food started to run out, we moved on, right? We moved on to a new place, a new fertile, more fertile place uh, to live. You know, when when things got dicey with a, a, a neighboring clan or with some wild animals, we went and hid in the cave, as it as it were. So, in a very real sense, you, I, and everyone listening to this podcast are here today because our ancient ancestors were scaredy cats, right? They were kind of chicken and they were, they were sort of fearful. And that's why they lived to, to fight another day. So this loss aversion, this risk aversion is sort of baked into our DNA. And we know that we are about two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are happy about a comparably sized gain. We have this sort of asymmetrical risk-reward preference, which actually makes a ton of sense, right? Because if you're about to do something risky, if you're going to do some evil Knievel motorcycle stunt and you land it, you might be super happy, but that happiness abates over time. Mm -hmm. If you do some evil Knievel stunt and you misjudge the risk and you get it wrong once, you're dead, mm. right? So in, in terms of evolutionary uh, goodness, happiness and risk avoidance have nothing in common, right? Mm -hmm. it, it makes sense evolutionarily that we'll go out of our way to avoid loss and avoid risk versus gain happiness. And so we have to take that sort of primitive bodily leaning we have and apply it to privileged lives in North America, right? Like if you live in Atlanta or Edmonton or wherever, your chances of getting eaten by a wild animal or, you know, starving are, are very slim. And so we have this new reality, this new sort of risk reward reality that we're applying old modes of thinking and old bodily tendencies to. Yeah, very well said. And this is about chatting to you, but yeah, just making me think of when I started diving into the psychology of money and emotions and decision makings, I started to realize that I had to go back and I've talked about this on the podcast to really look at why I tried to hold on to money so much. And it really, I was, as a kid, I was shy. And in Canada, hockey players are like, we, we praised them and they just seemed to make so much money and people listened to them. They seemed like they had a good life. So I attached money with power and this loss of version actually was really impacting me. I'm just coming to it now is because I remember like when I first was out on my own trying having to pay the gas bill and electrical bill, I didn't want to part ways with the money because it was like taking away from this power identity that I was starting to develop. And, and I guess the loss of version was also in there. It's like, I didn't want to lose the money, so to speak, even though I had to. So it's just so interesting how these, on our own personal levels, back to your idea of optimal personal, our own personal experiences with money is personal based on how we grew up, like what I just talked about there. And I feel like these cognitive biases interplay so much with our own emotions where perhaps that's why you're saying a third party could be helpful as another override to these biases because they help us get out of those, I guess, stuck in those ways of thinking. Would you say that's why a third party is helpful to help us get out of like, old patterns of thinkings or, or things that we might not be viewing properly? 
we all grow up with these money stories, you know, based on how we grew up, who our parents were, their sort of socioeconomic realities, where we grew up, right? Like having spent a summer in Canada, I know at least a little bit about the sort of Canadian psyche with respect to money relative to the American psyche. It's very different, right? And so all of these things, none of them are right or wrong, but they just are. Mm. And so we sort of swim in this water of our money story that may be good or may not be good for us sort of getting to the place where we want to with respect to reaching some financial goals. And so working with a professional can just provide some clarity around that money story in addition to just sort of the nuts and bolts of allocating those resources well, knowing how much to save, knowing the legal ins and outs. All of that is, of course, important too. Uh, But from a psychological perspective, yeah, it gets us sort of outside of our own experience, outside of our own heads and and gives us a new perspective on money. There's a lot of, I don't know if this was actually in one of Thaler's studies or there's this numbers that got are thrown around. Maybe it's 80% emotions drive 90% of our decisions and like the logical decision-making is 10%. I don't know if that's an actual study or people just say it, but the idea is that emotion drive the majority of our financial decisions. If that's the case, how important do you think it is for consumers when they go to this third party to question them to see what this third party's intentions are to kind of see their money story and their philosophy around money? It's an interesting question. Because when we look at financial professionals, right, when we look at financial advisors and how they are with their own money, they are not much better than you or I. But when we look at financial professionals and how they are with other people's money, on average, they are significantly better. This is actually research out of Canada. You know, people who work with financial professionals for 15 years plus have 2.7x the wealth of their peers who have gone it alone. And that's after controlling for 55 different variables. So things like income and cost of living and all this, when you tease it out and make it all equal, people who've gotten advice do nearly three times as well as those who don't. And it's because these advisors have helped these people avoid these emotional decisions. And it it all goes back, you know, to this this knowing doing gap, Mm -hmm. right? Think about back when you were dating, right? You could you could look at your friends' relationships like in college. And if you, you know, you're all kind of partnered off and you go, wow, you know, they're good together, they're not good together. But then when it comes to your own relationship, you're flying blind because the emotion that you feel for that other person makes you sort of worse at making objective decisions about the pros and cons of that relationship. You can actually be a better judge of whether or not other people should be married and whether or not you should be married. And this, the same thing is true of, of your money. It's just this weird quirk in the human system that we can see externally more clearly than we can see internally. So financial advisors aren't great with their own money, but on average, they have a tremendously positive impact on the people they serve. You know, I guess it goes to the even to sport trainers. Some trainers I've seen are not in good shape, but their athletes are winning Stanley Cups, Olympic gold medals. So I've often seen the same thing. Like, how is this person training a world-class athlete? (laughs) There you go. So a lot of this conversation is around these cognitive biases, these limitations to some degree around our money. 
In your book, you have what I guess determined as four consistent types of behavioral risk. And I, I think you did a really good job of taking all of these different biases and putting in nice four categories. And if I'm not mistaken, maybe you've used the word investor stupidity to, de- to describe some of these. <laughs> Can you touch on what this investor stupidity is and what are the four categories and what is the significance of them? Yeah, one, one of the things that was important for me to do was to give investors and advisors sort of a workable universe of, of behavioral risk, if you will, because there's been a huge proliferation of these biases. Like mm. we're discovering more and more of them every day. I think there's well over 200 now, but it's not exactly useful, you know, for you when a client walks into your office to say, hey, you know, Mrs. Jones, look, there's 200 ways that you can screw this up. <laughs> like, like, you know, learn them, Good luck. learn them and don't, you know, learn them and don't get it wrong. So, you know, what I found was that when I looked at these 200 or so biases, a lot of them had a common underpinning. A lot of them had a common sort of root cause. And so sort of those four root causes I I discovered were ego, which is overconfidence in sort of its, its many forms. You know, we think we are smarter than average. We think we're luckier than average. We think we're better than average at seeing the future. Those are sort of the different flavors of, of ego. There was emotion, which we've touched on a bit today. As you were mentioning earlier, all the research shows that we, we tend to feel an emotion and then work backwards cognitively to create a story that serves that emotion. So even when it looks like we're being rational and well thought out, typically what we're doing is sort of arguing a rational case for an irrational emotion. There was attention, which is our tendency to sort of confuse things that are loud with things that are likely. So, you know, think about the news and all the sort of the horror stories you see on the news. Definitionally, the fact that they're being shown to you on the news means that they're a little rare or noteworthy. And yet we see those things and we go, oh, gosh, like this is, you know, this is coming to a neighborhood near me and I should be scared. So attention is sort of confusing things that are high profile with things that are likely stock market crashes, terrorism, all sorts of, you know, good examples here. And then the last one is conservatism, which is this tendency to be, you know, ambiguity averse, risk averse, loss averse, and status quo prone, and just basically to prefer what we know. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example sort of between our two great countries. Canada accounts for uh, about 4 to 5% of the world economy, right? Not bad for whatever it is, 35 million people, right? So 4 to 5% of the world economy comes out of Canada. The U.S. is about 50% of the world economy. The average U.S. investor has about 80, 85% exposure to U.S. stocks, the average Canadian investor has about 80, 85% exposure to Canadian stocks. And this is true in every country where we look at it, right? People are, are overweight the stuff they know. Mm-hmm. People are overweight the companies and the organizations that they see on their drive around town because they're familiar to them and they feel safe. You know, as you're going through those, and in your example about overweight in your home country, 
It makes me think more and more about the accessibility of information. And where I'm going with this is like, how many cognitive biases are at play in the ones you just set forth when new things come out, like say GameStop or even cryptocurrencies. And this isn't a thing on like, should we have cryptocurrencies or not? It's just, I feel like your your book and your your four categories can help people who are like, have an affinity or such a, a conviction versus whether it was GameStop or even cryptocurrencies just acknowledge and just step back, kind of pause those emotions and be like, hey, I have all these biases at place. Have I recognized them? So I guess what would your take be on whether it's cryptocurrencies or just anything that we start just like, this is the answer. I got it. What would you say to these people? I guess these people is all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is all of us. So to, two things that I would I would say is I think all four of these behavioral risks are sort of a good mental checklist for a meme stock or crypto or whatever, right? I would also say, if you look at emotion, you know, I say, if you're excited about an investment, it's probably a bad idea. And so what we see is that strong emotion tends to be the enemy of deep understanding. A strong emotion tends to be the enemy of deep understanding. So you take something like crypto, which is super polarizing. There are people out there shouting from the rooftops that crypto is this can't miss next big thing, godsend future of finance, right? And then there's another camp of people saying Bitcoin is going to zero. It's a scam. It's useless. And the truth is almost invariably somewhere in the middle. And the people with you know, the people with the, the strongest emotion either for or against are really not worth listening to. And one of the things that I've had to, I've sort of struggled with on my own podcast is of course, wanting to cover things like meme stock investing and crypto, but trying to source experts who are middle of the road and thoughtful about these things. So, you know, the first thing that I would say is, Strong emotion tends to be the enemy of, of sound decision-making and deep understanding. The second thing that I would say is that we confuse social proof with safety. So going back again to sort of our evolutionary roots, like if you and I are, you know, back if we're on the savannas of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago, and you eat a berry and, you know, your partner eats a berry and her friend eats a berry, and the next day you're all walking around, I go, okay, these berries are good to eat, right? You know, there's, there's a form of safety in that social proof. We still do that, right? When we see our friends and neighbors and the Uber driver and the pizza delivery guy all investing in Bitcoin or GameStop or, or whatever it is, right? Tech stocks, whatever, NFTs, we go, oh, okay, well, this is safe then because everyone's doing it. I'm not saying any of those things are good or bad on their face. I just think we need to understand that the fact that a lot of people are doing something doesn't necessarily mean that it's risk-free in an investment context. You know, final thought, it's an exciting time to be an investor. I mean, there's just a lot of like really interesting stuff going around. And I think it's best to approach it with an open-minded curiosity and a level of dispassionate interest. Just like, huh, what's this? Like, I want to learn about this. Because I mean, I'll be the first to say I was so negative about crypto. When I first heard about it, I was just immediately dismissive 
of like, this is magic internet money. What is mm -hmm. this? And, you know, I think I missed some of the potential and sort of the more positive use cases for crypto and, and digital assets because I didn't approach it with open-minded curiosity initially. I approached it with sort of dis disdain and skepticism. Mm, yeah, wow. Such a good example for your experience with cryptocurrencies, but also like that dispassionate interest or curiosity. This idea of social proof, when we think about curiosity, I want to focus on the curiosity of what's potential available. But I, I want to say this first on social proof. Now with technology, with social media, it seems like the social proof is just rapid fire. And then if I'm clicking or if I'm scrolling on cryptocurrencies, this tech companies know to crank up the that content to me and it's just reconfirming, reconfirming. So I feel like your message is always important. But at this point in time, social proof is just being like literally downloaded into our, our, our minds. But let's think of the positive now. What optimism or what curiosity or excitement do you have that potentially tech can play? I just thought of this question now. Tech can play with helping us with our behavioral biases as opposed to using them against us, kind of like the subscription model and the things that other companies have done to take advantage of them. Do you see anything on the horizon? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a big part of what my job is. You know, I, I work for a large technology company. And one of the things that I'm tasked with doing is looking at every part of our process and every part of our workflow to ensure that our investors and the advisors that we serve and their clients are sort of best served from a choice. It's called choice architecture, mm -hmm. right? From just the way that things are presented and architected, is it done in a way that's going to induce, you know, sort of the better angels of our decision-making or is it going to induce greed and fear? So, you know, without naming names, some of the most popular platforms right now will do things like say, you know, here's the stock that everyone invested in yesterday, right? Like, we know that that's going to induce people to act, whether or not it's in their best interest is, is another story. You know, if you go to book a hotel now, folks are aware of this. You know, you go to hotels.com and you go try and book a room and it says, hurry, Daniel, you know, 15 other people are looking at the king suite at the whatever. And so they know that social proof can work for us or against us. It's really going to be an arms race to see do the good folks win or do the, do the people who are, are sort of invested in, in appealing to our worst impulses win? And I think that we as consumers can support the technology companies that are thoughtful about this in a way that, that is, is conducive to better decision. Well, we look forward to seeing new development from Orion then and uh, how you can help out. Do you, do you guys serve Canadians? Uh, not, not yet. yet. Okay. We're, we're, uh, we're working on it. <laughs> So my, my last question before I ask you to just tell our audience about your books, your podcast, what you're doing. But my last question is, imagine that you're at end of life, whatever that life expectancy is. You're anywhere in the world, could be back in Western Canada with the bears or wherever somewhere peaceful for you. And you're on your front porch and you're tasked with this idea to write a letter to your kids' kids about what you've learned to have a healthy relationship with money. What would the theme of that message be? I think my theme would be that money is a, a great servant and a poor master, right? That money can do a great deal to reduce misery, but it can't do much to induce happiness. So use money for what it's good for. 
money can give you healthy, nutritious food. It can give you a warm, dry, safe place to live. It can buy you good schools for your kids. And that's about it. Like it can sort of cover the necessities of life. And all of that is important to sort of the reduction of misery. Money is excellent at reducing misery. What it doesn't do well, though, is give us meaning, right? Lifting us up those first few rungs of of Maslow's hierarchy, fantastic job. Money can do that almost all by itself. But then once we start to get higher, that's on you. That's on you and on your love and your friendship and your spiritual practice, your meditation, all the things that make life worth living. So use that money to serve you to a point, and then it's your turn. It's your turn to make the the steps to make that life meaningful and beautiful. Well, thank you. I appreciate that answer. You know what? Yeah, I had a quote from you that really goes in line with what you said there. So I'm going to read it. I I forget where I got that, but it said... It's a lesson to me and I hope to others to enjoy the journey and to try beauty in the mundane because we are programmed to never really arrive. So it just reminded me of that quote. Well, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your insights. Where can people find your podcast, your book, or more information about yourself and the work you're doing? Yeah, the the name of my podcast is Standard Deviations. My favorite thing is to see that Folks from different parts of the world are listening, so I'll be keeping an eye on Canada, and I'd love to have some Canadian friends join me there. The names of my two best books are The Behavioral Investor and The Laws of Wealth. I'd love for you to check those out. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel Crosby and on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and have yourself a good day. Thank you. You too. Another fantastic conversation. I really enjoy having conversations with people like Dr. Daniel Crosby. I hope you enjoyed his insights and be sure to check out his podcast, Standard Deviations, and his book. uh, Maybe start with The Behavioral Investor or The Law of Wealth. You will not be disappointed. Until next week, have yourself a wonderful time.